Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast. Joining me today is Kira Bickers, the author of Bitcoin Clarity. This book, for whatever reason, has gone very kind of unnoticed, I would say, slipped under the radar. Max, big shout out to you. You know who you are if you're listening for bringing this book to my attention. And Kira, what a book you have written. So if you're listening to this and you've not heard of Kira, you've not read her book, you know what to do. I highly recommend it. It's very visual. It helped me understand so much of what was still missing in my own understanding around Bitcoin. Because as you know, we are always learning every day, every single second, what this thing is, what it means, how it works. And Kira does a great job of bringing that all together. So before we get into the show with Kira, I'd love to give a big shout out to the sponsors of the show. I might mix up the order a little bit. Dramatic pause. Make sure you take control of your keys and your coins. Get them off the apps and get them off the exchanges. Make sure you put them on a hardware wallet. Use the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only edition wallet really cool easy to use you can find it at shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten where shall i go next the us of a sure why not swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten start stacking your sats let's bring it back to europe relay r-e-l-a-i dot ch forward slash bitten dca service and finish in the uk coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten bitcoin only exchange did i do that just in time to start the show i think i did here's kira okay kira we are we are live we are recording welcome to the show thanks for having me lauren is here to ask the first question so let's fire away lauren okay uh why did you write a book I wrote a book because I was tired of being on Twitter. <laughs> Do you have social media yet? Uh, well, I have a phone to play video games and a computer to do my classes. Okay, okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll clue you in. You can just skip social media. You don't need it. Yeah, I kind of do for my school, though. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a surprise. They're requiring kids are on social media now. Uh, um, the school's a little bit different. Um, why don't you tell uh, Kira well, about your school? Well, this school is called Galileo. It's a school like every ch like uh, children from around the world and teachers from around the world. And we do um, Zoom calls. And they teach us on the Zoom calls. And we use these apps or websites. That's very cool. No state schooling for these guys at the moment. I love it. We, I love we, it. We've separated education from state. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at doing the same thing over here. There's like a classical school movement. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's kind of like a, it's a, it, it's not, they don't use state curriculum. They use state money, but they're like actually allowed to teach history. 
Well, some of the classical schools are private, but um, but yeah, they teach religious history and and as well as a number of other things, which I thought was interesting for a state's for for a state sponsored paid for school. Do, do you have kids? I don't, but I'm in the process of um, of of having some soon. <laughs> Well, congratulations. So yeah, you've got a yeah. whole rabbit hole to fall down then. This is... Uh, exactly, exactly. Amazing. So I've already nerded out on all the, the good school alternatives for, for kids and I'm I'm pretty stoked about it. I think the Galileo school sounds awesome. Yeah, there's a lot of work being done in, in that space, you know, taking education online and away from brick and mortar and away from uh, state-run curriculums. There's... Uh, and. American Hoddle and Mrs. American Hoddle have even started up a clubhouse room now where people oh, wonderful. are coming in and, yeah, and joining and, and opening discussions about this. It's just a natural fit for any Bitcoiners. And somehow he hasn't got um, kicked out of clubhouse. He's not been banned from clubhouse yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Um, I know the, the, STEM, the STEM schools are kind of all the rage right now. And what, what, what I heard, what really sold me on the classical schools was um, – you know, the only reason why we say that we're interested in science, math, and engineering is because we're too weak to say beauty, goodness, and truth. And that, that to me is the shift between the difference between a STEM school and a classical school. Like, why are we actually doing science? Why are we actually doing math? It's because it leads to truth. And I thought that was really, really something. Now, whether or not you can find the right teachers to run these schools sort of is, still remains to be proven to me. Yeah, exactly. It's a long, it's a long journey, but there's been so much work being put in over the last uh, five years or so. And of course, you know, COVID has accelerated everything, yep. anything out there. Uh, and so this shift now to remote schooling or homeschooling, unschooling, world schooling is in full steam ahead. And it's going to be a very exciting space. So for people building, like yourself, building families right now, I think you're at this, you know, excellent point in uh, educational history that is turning to something so special, uh, something completely different, which uh, is very, very exciting. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, I care a lot about this stuff because I had to suffer through public school. So I hope that your daughter is enjoying, <laughs> I hope that you're enjoying your education and being able to like actually say you like going to school because that's a gift. All right, Daddy, I'm going to stop you there. Okay. And um, when I'm going to go, mm -hmm. or Samuel brought this up, should I go get you a coffee? Oh, no, it's okay. It's okay. fine. Thank you very much for asking. And thanks for your first question. <laughs> okay, thank you. Bye. Bye. So let's dive a little bit deeper into that, like why why you wrote the book. I mean, it's a very uh, nice answer that you gave. You, you were tired of being on, on Bitcoin Twitter. Is that because <laughs> you were tired of writing too many lengthy threads? Uh, what what was no, the- No, no, I, I have a, I don't know if it was me who came up with this. It might've been Evolve, but I, I the, the term crypto tribalism has come up a number of times. And I feel that, um, for me personally on social media, I'm, I'm a very introspective person. And I think that when I'm on social media and when you get traction in terms of like having something go, let's say viral, you, there's a, there's a pull, there's a blur between you and your audience because like it, it, implicitly, you know what your audience wants 
and you could deliver that. Like you could say exactly what you know the audience wants to hear once you're tapped into a group. But that is where you sort of lose your own ability to critical think. <clears throat> because once you're once once you're delivering what the audience wants and not what you think you not what you find interesting or not what you necessarily want to communicate, it gets yeah, you lose yourself in that process. So uh, a good example of this is like um, like the, the most recent phenomenon of everyone's doing like laser eyes, you know what I mean? Like that, that's cool, but it makes you so a part of a group that you start to say what only the group has already accepted to believe is true. And it's very difficult to push the Overton window when you're in, when you're at the center of the group, like by definition, you sort of have to be on the edges. And that's what I find more interesting. I think writing a book and sitting with myself was a more productive use of my time than sitting at the center of the group. So my my Peter Schiff memes are, uh, are not serving me. Is that what uh, you're trying to say? <laughs> well, you know that they're going to get traction, right? Like there's a calculated thing where you're like, this narrative is already successful. Therefore, I'm going to do it again, which is like why we have 10 Spider-Man movies, right? It's like Spider-Man movies have been tried and true, which is why they're going to do it again. But is that like what speaks to me? No, right? So like, does that make me want to get up at 5 a.m. in the morning? No, like the... I, it's definitely a way to grow an audience. And I think that there's certainly value in that. Um, but yeah, it, it's harder for me to shift between like appealing to an audience and then also writing what I find interesting, which is why like a book allowed me to just like get out of of other people's heads and into my own, I think. So come on, who's your Peter Parker? I don't even know. The, yeah, I, I, I don't even watch those movies. <laughs> All right. And yeah. I've just noticed actually on your Twitter, I didn't notice before, and I've been following you for, for a while, uh, that you don't have the laser eyes. So you, you've, you've managed to, to, to keep yourself unlasered. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely could do it. It's just like, to me, it... it I don't think that this is necessarily true for other people, but for me, once I start to become part of a group, very obviously, it makes it harder for me to to critically evaluate things. Maybe I'm just the only one who's honest about that, or maybe that this is something like unique to me. But yeah, it feels like I want to maintain my ability to critically think, and if I if I go too far into um, like mimetic behavior, then I'm just going to become a copy of a copy of a copy. I gotcha, and I love the book. It's excellent, and uh, thank you. Shout out to if you're listening, Max. You know who you are. He's he's the one that put me onto this. Uh, he he heard you on a different podcast. I can't remember which one. Maybe it was Cedric's, and he he read the book and he you know he DM'd me. He's like, you got to read this, and you're gonna have to get Kira on. And I'm cool. glad he did, because for whatever reason, it sailed under my radar. And I've, I've read a lot of them, and <laughs> I hadn't come across this one. And it's brilliant. Well, I'll tell you why. It's because I haven't pushed it. I haven't pushed it as like a marketing front as, you know what I mean? Like I haven't done the whole Bitcoin Twitter storm thing. Are you shilling lightly, Kira? Is that what you're saying? I'm, I'm, I'm shilling a little lightly, which is, you know, shame on me for this. I did, I did do a lot more direct outreach than I did like constant Twitter shilling, but yeah, no, I, I have a really fun time writing and I I've learned that I'm not necessarily a marketer at least at, at least when it comes to me as an individual. So next time I'm going to write a second book called Crypto Chaos and that one maybe I'll I'll shill a little harder. We'll see. Any spoilers? 
Um, I don't know if I'd say spoilers, but like to the degree that this book was about Bitcoin as a system, I think crypto chaos will be fairly similar. My 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 goal with that is to look at the patterns in the crypto space and then show how they're repeated. So, you know, how many different exit scams, how many different um, like security vulnerabilities that are all 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 of the same things that are manifested in totally different projects, right? Like how is the DAO hype similar to the I don't know, the the, the current hype wave with the NF the NFTs and stuff. I'm learning so much about like other cryptos and it's like it's actually quite painful. It's like, oh my God, this is if Bitcoin is simple, like a lot of these things are extremely complicated. Yes, and I want to get it's into the that economics of how it all works. I don't know, like I'm learning about the DeFi kids and their staking toys, and like the, just craziness is happening right now. Lots of it, and that's definitely something I want to I want to touch on. But first of all, I, I would like to uh, learn a little bit more about yourself because you know I'm sure when you were growing up, and people said to you, "Hey, Kira, what do you want to be when you grow up?" This this wasn't even on the table, right? This wasn't a, even no, an it didn't exist. So, Sure, right. sure, sure. So, so what was your stock answer to, to your aunties and uncles or your nan who, were, who was ever answer, asking that question? So I remember I had an aunt who asked me this question. She was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I told her I wanted to be a cash register and she mocked me endlessly for that. So she, she's like, I think you mean cashier. And I was like, yeah, that. And she's like, they don't get to keep the money at the end of the day. I was like, okay, well, the one that gets to keep the money then. So I... So I guess my job wasn't totally far off, you know, what I really wanted was money printer. No, I'm just kidding. No, um, I never knew that I wanted to be a writer. I, I actually almost failed out of high school English because I was I was so like caught up in thinking more than like doing assignments. Um, yeah, if you were to have asked me what I actually wanted to do and, ha- and, ha- and if you were lucky enough to get a serious response from me. I think I wanted to be in the sciences. That was probably the the closest thing. I, I thought I was going to end up working in a lab doing particularly like I, I wanted to understand epigenetics, genetics and how genetics affected the brain. Um, but it turns out that those jobs are a lot of smoke and mirrors. So I, I went down that path for a while and then I, I worked in a couple labs and I saw how much education quote unquote education. Let's gonna let's not even call it that. I saw how many certificates the upper level researchers had and how little actual science they were doing. It, more or less it was just like, you know, I t- it was more like applying to grants, b- doing all these moonshots at maybe getting money for your lab and then ultimately like your research was never going to be validated by a secondary party, so it's like is that really what what value did that really have? I don't know. It, it was it was very difficult to get into a position that would be interesting. Like I thought maybe 100 people had managed to do that or maybe even only 10. Uh, and the tech space <clears throat> just ended up crossing my radar. So I, I worked, I, I was living in the Silicon Valley and I was working at Stanford and I would drive to and from Stanford daily at like 4 or 5 a.m. And I would listen to Mises Institute podcasts. I would listen to a lot of podcasts, but that was... For a while, that was my binge. So they do a yearly course where they like bring out all these high school kids or college kids. I can't remember, but they bring out all these kids and they do lectures for them yearly. And I would listen to every year, like just I would binge listen. So I was like listening to 2000, 
I don't know, 14 to 16 or something like that at the time. And I learned so much about Austrian economics while never having been educated in Keynesian economics because I didn't study it formally in school. So I was sort of this like perfect brainwashed candidate for like really becoming not even a gold bug because it was Mises who was talking about having private money as a potential or not Mises, sorry. Um, was, I think it was Hayek, right? So anyway, so I, I started doing that. And then at the same time that I was listening to those podcasts, I I heard about Bitcoin. And then I started just talking about Bitcoin to anyone who would listen. And at the time, in the, most of the people who knew anything about Bitcoin were extremely technical. So they'd be like, oh, if you want to learn more about Bitcoin, you should learn how to code. So I was young and I had a lot of time on my hands. So I was like, okay, I'll like learn C++. I spent a couple years doing that and I'm just, I'm not, I'm not, um, <laughs> I'm not a protocol level wizard. Let's put it that way. I learned how to code in a very rudimentary sense. I, I could hack things together. I could build at the application level, but I was never like a protocol level type developer, at least in my mind, maybe, maybe I could have gotten there if I had, if I had done more, but ultimately I had learned how to code and I went back to the Bitcoin source code and I still didn't understand how Bitcoin worked. And I was like, well, that was a huge waste of my time. Um, so I, I just kept talking about Bitcoin. I ended up working at a number of Bitcoin companies because on some level I was a lot more knowledgeable than other people at that period in time, right? Like who had, who else had spent, I was following all the t technical discussions, um, I was more or less like in the industry, I was very young. Um, but yeah, I, I had a lot of time on my hands. I had time to contribute. And that that's what young people bring energy, right? So I had all this excitement and energy. I was learning about things like PGP because I had never heard of it before. And all these old guys who had been in this space for decades, they're like, oh my God, you heard about Bitcoin before you heard about PGP? Like what a trip. Um, so I ended up getting an internship working at a company, which is you know, where I kind of got my start in the industry, which is Blockstream. So Blockstream is known for having, they contribute a lot to the community via hiring and paying, subsidizing a lot of the core development. Um, that's a little less important now because the price of Bitcoin is high, but in the early days when b developers weren't getting paid, it was extremely important. Um, so I got the benefit of going out to lunch and just understanding the way core developers think. And I realized that, maybe this is where my philosophy of, of not necessarily enjoying Bitcoin Twitter comes from now, is that a lot of the most important dialogue is overshadowed by mimetic, valuable things. Like like all the stuff that happens on Twitter that is funny and catches on is is good from a sentiment perspective, if you're someone who like cares about Bitcoin sentiment as driving Bitcoin price. But like fundamentally, the stuff that they were working on at the protocol level was so much more interesting to me. Like I learned about when I started as an intern, I worked under the chief security officer and for a week he had me do, doing nothing but picking locks. And I would start with like these clear plastic locks and then we'd move up to like the deadbolts on doors. And, it, and then, it, then I'd add a timing element. And I was really, it was never like explicitly taught like, okay, in week one of Blockstream, you're going to learn adversarial thinking. It was never like that. It was just like, oh, here's something interesting that I do in my spare time. You should do it too. And I just learned so much shit that way. It was so dope. And like, yeah, so that's how I got started in Bitcoin. And my frustration, which is to answer your original question and your daughter's questions of like why I wrote the book, is I think that 
having come into Bitcoin from an economic perspective, right? Like I was listening to these Mises podcasts. Uh, that is not enough to understand Bitcoin. And if that's the only level you understand the system at, you will be misled because like, it's just to state it simply, it's just not enough, right? Like not to say you need to learn how to like decode your private key into binary, which I would say is too much. And, and you don't need to learn C++, which is the direction a lot of these uh, more technical people in the space want to push people like the whole learn to code meme. I wanted to find a middle ground and I thought I was uniquely positioned to do that because I, I was so pissed of having invested like four years of my life at this point doing it the hard way. <laughs> and you clearly still think about the, the opportunity cost, I'm sure, of, uh, of those four years or have you come to terms with, you know, that's probably led you to, to where you needed to ultimately go? Oh, I mean, now it's great. Now I feel like it was, I'm not necessarily upset about it now. I would just say it wouldn't have been the route that I would have chosen had I have had perfect knowledge up front, right? So now I'm like, okay, this is really cool because I'm in a unique position to be able to interface with developers and, and biz dev people and product people. Like that's that's great for me. Um, but for instance, like I'm, I'm working with a guy who's a lawyer who read the book and he wants to do like one-on-one -on -one Bitcoin stuff with me. And he's like, I really want to learn about Bitcoin, but I don't want to do it the way you did. And, you know, there's still a potential. Like we call it the Bitcoin rabbit hole. You know, it's like how much of your life do you have to invest to learning about Bitcoin to just understand Bitcoin? Like that's not a reasonable investment for average. For not, I shouldn't say average because who, who wants to be average? But it's not a reasonable investment for people who want to participate in the space. People who want to either accept Bitcoin for their business. Like everyone has an end goal when they're trying to get into Bitcoin. And you know, to some extent it's making money, but another extent it's like, how do I contribute? So like when I was learning the development stuff, I was building all kinds of stuff on top of Bitcoin. Like I had built the first paper wallet app for iOS at a time when Apple was like rejecting Bitcoin wallets left and right. Like it was a new thing that they would even allow them. But I was just trying to understand like how to interface with the system, how the system worked. I had this idea of like repurposing HD keys you know, for some sort of selective identity disclosure thing. And then I, I brought that all the way up to the UN and I was like, whoa, this is evil. Let's take a step back from that. Um, <laughs> like, there's, a, there's a lot of things in the crypto space, but you have to figure out like where you're uniquely positioned, right? Like you're, you're doing a podcast. I wrote a book, right? And we're all just fascinated with this new technology. It's so interesting. Uh, I mean, it's, we talk about this a lot, actually, because there are a lot of Bitcoin Twitter lurkers, right, that, that haven't found their spot yet, but are dying to, to do that. When did you realize it's a book for you? Because you, I mean, like you said, you, 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 didn't re you didn't ever dream of becoming a writer. So th th what on earth made you think, hmm, the book yes. is the right way? So I was in Australia with a couple of um, the like Bitcoin core devs and then security researchers. And I remember that they were complaining about how no good book existed. Now that's not, that's a bit harsh, right? But they were basically saying that the books that are written for developers are not read by developers. And then they confuse people who are not meant to be developers because, you know, you go onto Amazon and you get, if you were to buy the, the books with the top hundred reviews, well, it's going to make you enjoy Bitcoin and want to participate in Bitcoin. Like the, the hype level is high, but ultimately, does it help you understand the system? Like, d does understanding how like 
opcodes work really explain the whole system. You know what I mean? It doesn't. It doesn't. So yeah, I think at, during that conversation was the first time I ever heard of the concept of this time chain and how how the the how <laughs> I understood peer to peer and I understood no third like not relying on third parties. But what I didn't understand was how this decentralized time server was keeping time internal to itself. And I was like, that's a really beautiful mental model. That helps me understand. Like it actually leveled up my understanding of the system, like probably tenfold, because then I understood why the mining difficulty existed. I under I understood how the feedback loop worked. And it was just like one simple explanation. The thing was, I put it simple in like air quotes, right? Like I'm a visual thinker, so I needed to sketch the whole thing out. And I, I saw like when I was trying to Google this, one, there were no images on it. And all of the images that are used in the existing technical book infrastructure, if we could call it that, let's call it the knowledge infrastructure. It sounds a little bit better, right? All of the, everything that existed in the existing knowledge infrastructure, meaning like books, blog, blog, blog posts, and podcasts were verbally articulated, or if they ever were vi visually articulated, they took diagrams from like the Bitcoin wiki and repurpose them for the general audience in a way that it no longer made any sense. Like know your audience, right? It's like this stuff, like if you want to like look into HD keys by reading the BIP, you know, wiki or by reading the, like the, the, the pull requests and shit on GitHub, like good luck, right? It, it's not, it's, it's not the right way to go about it. And the thing was, having been working with the developers, it was certainly not their place to water it down because it would be such a misallocation of their time. Like they should just be building shit. So, you know, I mean, I, I, it's not as if I was a protocol level developer. I, at this time, I had shifted from being an intern to being a sysadmin. I had done some development work. So I had a lot of bandwidth to write this book and I basically just volunteered my time to do it because it sounded fun and it was a tool for to really making my own understanding concrete. I've not had any interactions yet with any devs and I want to start getting some guys on the show, but I can't imagine some of the conversations you've been a fly on the wall to. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're just people, but I mean, it was like, they're really nerdy people with a high IQ. So it's very, it, it's challenging to not get imposter syndrome around these people. And, you know, I think some of them have a hard time interfacing with others because it's like everyone else, I, I, I it's, it's, it's weird. It's, it's weird at some level because they're extremely intelligent. Um, I think it's different now in the Bitcoin space than it was then. Like one living in San Francisco, I would say like the Bitcoin dev meetup had a ton of devs. Like the bus factor on that event was so high. It was like, yeah, there was a ton of devs that would go to that and it was great. But like I would kind of take a look around the room during the actual presentation. I'd be like, OK, what percentage of people in the audience actually understood the content of the presentation? And the answer was only the people giving the presentation, right? So it's like the, the the core devs were just giving a presentation to the general audience, but it was only the other devs who were actually tapped into like the value of what was being said. Um, the fact that it was happening in public, I think would just made it kind of worse because then you get this celebrity thing that happens around the devs that I don't think they like. Like I remember I was, Peter Woolock works at Blockstream and then he was the guy behind Segwit and a number of other things. I remember he came into the office once and there was like a, a whole stack of like Peter Woolock meme like calendars. <laughs> and it was like, you know, it, it, I think it's just weird for them more or less. Like, you know what I mean? So 
yeah, it wouldn't be the case in any other developer community that your developers turn into like little celebrities. I don't think that's, I don't think they necessarily like that. Um, but yeah, the conversations are dope. Like at one level they're developers, but this is not just a normal industry, right? They're cypherpunks too. And like talking about the different ways that they could improve the existing systems are, are awesome. It's just, uh, it's just frustrating because, you know, someone can have a hundred good ideas, but they, each idea could spin off into its own company, basically. And then in this space, one of the things is like, okay, a good idea is cool, but like, how do you monetize it? Like, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the wallet infrastructure is very hard to monetize. Like the only the only wallets that are really monetizable are exchange wallets or hardware wallets because you get something in return. But if you wanted to make like, you know, potentially like uh, some sort of extremely secure, extremely is maybe an exaggerated term. If you wanted to make some some sort of really productive wallet software, there's no way to guarantee that that company continues to exist unless they can monetize it. And I don't know that they have been like, I don't know what company has been able to monetize it. Blockstream has a wallet. I think we're about to have two or three because we have a hardware wallet and then we have two different software wallets. But like the only reason those those exist is because Blockstream exists and like we don't monetize them. So how do you know those products are going to exist in 10 years? The the big wallet that was working at the time was like the blockchain.info. Like, you know, it, it's it's complicated to monetize these things, which is so crazy because it's like, does everyone just buy Bitcoin? <laughs> is that the only way you can monetize things in this space? Yeah, it's interesting. And what what other books were you reading before you led up to uh, writing your own one? Did, did you, I, th- I think um... it's safe to say I read them all. I read them all. Yeah. I read a whole bunch of crypto. <laughs> yeah, I, I read them all. I read all the cryptography books that I could get my hands on, like textbooks and stuff like that. Um, I would say the pattern in a lot of the books that I thought were not particularly helpful was the way that they broke down like cryptography down to like oh, I don't know, like the man in the middle problem and like like very specific things in cryptography that like the average person didn't need to know. Right. So that's where you saw the um, the the uh, the hole that you needed to uh, to fill with uh, with your book, which, again, very visual. Like you say, you're a visual thinker and you put that in the book. They're your actual hand sketches. Uh, not my hand, but I, so I drew out all the sketches, but you wouldn't want to see what they look like. They were pretty bad. So I took note cards and I sketched everything out. And then I was at my coffee shop and I saw these really beautiful sketches on the wall. And then I, I, that guy's name is Jordan. Who's amazing. I think his full name and his Instagram handle are in the book, but his sketches were amazing. He was doing like landscape art. And I was like, would you be interested in just like doodling some shit for my book? And he loved it. It's like one of the coolest projects that he worked on according to him. So, um, yeah, I worked with him for like a couple months just to compute all of my, to translate all of my sketches into his, but he did a much better job than I would have. Now, I want to ask you a question about your accent, and you might find that pretty random question, but I did notice on one of your tweets recently sure. that you you responded to a tweet someone was talking about, um, like the breakdown of uh, Western family units, and your response was very interesting because it was something along the lines of... Um, you know, you, you half British, half Filipino, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, yeah, more yeah. or less. With but well, with the British side's accent. a little German, Filipino side's a little Spanish. Yeah, <laughs> of course. I'm. Mean, yeah, well, that's where that's where us mutts get made, right? Is America? So, uh, no, my my mother's Filipino and Spanish. My dad. I'm just in a genealogy uh, like little spiral. Actually, recently, I've been on Ancestry.com a lot, but. Um, 
yeah, my dad's my dad's very British, a little Irish, a little a little German, but um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting to try and to piece together the, the 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 percentages of all these things and the history of family. So you were actually born and raised in the U.S. That was uh, that that's where it all went down. I was. I was. I'm first generation on both sides. So my dad was born in Spain, even though he's British. My, yeah, exactly. And my mom was born in the Philippines. So, um, yeah, family, family. Yeah, I think that now I'm I'm pulling back the data from that tweet. That tweet was by a woman who was um, Asian predominantly, and she was saying that how in Asian culture there's sort of an implicit or there's an expectation of taking care of of your family for generations which does not exist in British and American culture. So, I mean, yeah, it's maybe it's just the current American culture, but yeah, that's, that's not an expectation. I think we have such radical levels of independence that we don't see the value in, in multi-generational, like tight knit families. Do you think that that's linked to fiat? Like that, that's just slowly been broken down. They're like the family unit. I know Marty talks about this a lot. Safe's mentioned it. Uh, the, you know, WTF happened in 1971. Guys have got some amazing demographic graphs. Do you ever uh, like look at it through that lens? No, I think that's certainly possible, but I, I would hesitate to call that the root, right? Um, I think the, the it, it potentially could be, but I, I can't go back in time and like flip the staying on the gold the, the gold, <laughs> the gold standard switch and then seeing how everything plays out. But I think it's slightly more complicated than that because I think that probably we're going, we're, there is some sort of like culture war taking place to actually like intentionally destroy the like American culture and family. I think that that is happening intentionally. Now, we're really running with it. And it, it, when you say it's happening intentionally, then it kind of puts all this conspiracy theory like, well, who's doing it? And it, yeah, I don't know if I, I could really answer that question necessarily, but the man, it's just a spiral. Yeah. I, I would place, I would place most of the, most of my concern about the, the breakdown of the family at a cultural basis. Now, obviously the fiat money system is not helping because there's no incentive to save. That's really the biggest issue. There's no incentive to save. And there's when there's no incentive to save, everyone's just looking at their cash flow. And the state is creating fake cash flow for both young people and the elderly. Like my mom doesn't necessarily need me because she's got state cash flow. <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of it's it's a weird situation. It's definitely weird. And they're getting the young people too, with like the free college and all this stuff. So they don't need their parents anymore. The state's going to pay your education. And it, that you can see that cultural breakdown at that as a consequence of that, because it's like, if you don't need your parents to pay for college, well, then you don't need their values either. And it kind of makes you more of an individual to reject all those values. And we think we're so clever when we're young, when we're rejecting our parents' values, but really all we're doing is we're inverting them. It's like, if your parent values one thing, it's not like you in isolation decide no 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 that's wrong and it's definitely this you just invert whatever it is they thought was cool it's like they love they love the beatles now you hate the beatles that's like gen x 
you know, but I think, uh, I think there's a lot of things that we do that are like that. We just invert that, like, you know, you, you have a, a dad who's conservative and then you're liberal or living in California. The amount of people that I met were that were from conservative States that were liberal because their parents were conservative. It's just like, it's, it's pretty transparent when you get past the age of like 25, what's actually, what you're actually doing. So I'm, I'm guessing you hope to buck that trend when you, uh, start your, your own family. And, um, I like to think that uh, young, you know, young Bitcoiners that are starting their family now, because they have this asset, they have the the lower time preference, that it's going to be um, a much tighter family unit. Do you ever like kind of think that way or have these kind of conversations with people? Um, not when it comes to Bitcoin directly. I think you know how you have a tight relationship with your kids is is hard. It really comes down to more of your personality than than anything else about your political philosophy or your economic philosophy. Because, you know, the thing with kids is they don't care how much money you have. They care how much quality time that you invest in them. So if you have more time as a result of, you know, being in Bitcoin or something like that, and you can invest that time to get down to their level and, and make a connection with them in the early years for, you know, the, you have to build that trust with them, I think, in order to maintain that relationship moving forward. Um, someone who, so for for my mom, she had a full time job. So I I actually, I think that relationship was never fully developed, and I can see it in other people where the kids, like where their parents are their heroes. Now, obviously, that has to break at some point. You wouldn't want your your, but maybe it doesn't. I don't know, but. Um, yeah, I think carrying that on through the teen years is kind of the challenge. Like first you have to develop it, then you have to maintain it through the teenage years. And I I think that's I think that's hard. I don't know if I see necessarily Bitcoin as a solution to that, um, aside from the fact that it does it does give you that longer time preference. Um, I would say it's not as if I see people in Bitcoin having more kids, which would be one of the feedback things that I would give. It's sort of like we all want this culture to exist, but it's hard for us. It's hard to, in isolation, be that culture. Um, I'm trying to have kids, but I'm not exactly young. Like I just turned 30. I'd like to have four or six or however many kids that I can have in in my thirties. But you know, like for my friends who are Bitcoiners who have kids, they're, they don't, they don't have a ton of friends with kids. So (laughs) you kind of need a whole community. Like I think about the way like my parents grew, grew up as baby boomers and they grew up with this whole culture of kids. Trying to find a place like that is actually pretty challenging. And, and living in Austin, you know, a lot of the restaurants have these playgrounds and stuff, but I, I don't know how what percentage of people actually have kids. It's got to be, it's definitely, it's definitely low. It's definitely a young vibe over there that I get. I, I've not visited, but I know a lot of the Bitcoin companies are out there. Unchained guys are all over there. Um, it must be it must be a cool place to hang out and, and find other Bitcoiners. Yeah, it's it's great, but the the Bitcoin conferences are still predominantly male, so I wouldn't say that's where you're going to meet your wife. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, like how these guys are going to find wives and then have kids. Um, yeah, it's it's tricky right now. It's tricky. But yeah, certainly the people who have Bitcoin are in a better position to make that move because they can, you know, they're probably they could probably support their kids a little bit more. Number go up will probably help them out. Number go up, that's right. <laughs> so, 
Okay, you touched on it. You touched on on the question that everybody is. Um, well, it's, it's almost a meme as well. You know, there's not enough women in the space. Uh, do you feel that way? And uh, what are your thoughts about it being a you know a dominant woman in the space? So I think yeah. When when we say it that way, there's not enough women in the fa- space. It sort of insinuates like oh, there should be more women. I would say if this is going to be uh, a cultural, if, like if this is a subculture in a community then yeah, there's definitely not women in the space if you're expecting it to be your primary community where people meet their partners. <laughs> you know, like that's not a sustainable thing. The, the problem is, is there isn't enough community in the world. So this has become the dominant community for most of us. It's true for me. Like I would be lying if I said that it wasn't. Like all, all of my closest friends are 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 Bitcoiners. You know, my neighbors are Bitcoiners. And these are the people that I, I call, that I text on a regular basis maybe i only have no i think everyone in my in my social circle fits this qualification so from that perspective it's a problem from another perspective of it just being like a hobby or an industry then i don't think it's a problem that there aren't enough women in the space like women have other interests you just have to go elsewhere to to meet to meet women you're you, i assume you might be married you have a child so is your wife a bitcoiner ah oh, it's taken a few years but uh <laughs> you know no, we've been married for a long time, so uh, I'm I'm about 15 years ahead of you in the game of life. Uh, so we've got okay, okay. Um, so it's. Uh, I I remember I saw a a poll that went out, and it wasn't um, related to Bitcoin. It was about related to bit, uh, libertarianism, which I would say is fairly overlapped. But the poll was basically for women only, and it was like, how did you get into this? Ideo- like like this space, this intellectual space, this ideology, this political movement, how, whatever you want to phrase it as, the cult, whatever, right? Um, and I think it was like 50% of women reported that it was their father. Like 25% of women said it was their boyfriend or husband. And then another 25% of women said it was just themselves on their own interest. So like knowing that this is the natural dis- distribution of how women get into the space, I think we just have to be honest about that. So for men, like having kids, talking to your daughters, rate, you know, having that positive relationship with them and then passing on the torch of, you know, perhaps limited government, anti-fiat type type thing. I think that's important for getting more women in the space because they're just born that way. Um, but that's really the long game, right? <laughs> and then, and then yeah. for, for people who meet their partner, like um, my wife was not particularly interested in Bitcoin when I brought it up. She's more of the like number go up. That's good, honey. Like she doesn't really care. But um, yeah, it's just different, different preferences. And I think that's okay. Wow. And do you know, um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm trying to think now if, if you guys are going along to these meetups, does that send a message to, to the other guys that do have girlfriends or wives that might be able to then say, Hey, Look, these girls are coming. You can go hang with those guys at the bar and, you know, they can talk to you in a different manner that it's not just like this massive sausage fest. I don't know if that works from like a practical perspective, because in my experience, like we do end up just talking about the same thing. Like, uh, like, so the women, the women who are in that 25% who just came into this industry naturally, I have a lot of my female friends fall into this category, Um, but all of us are probably just too analytical to have to, to be to be considered like normal, I think, uh, which is okay. But like, for instance, I find it very interesting to talk about 
like economics, which is not, it's probably not the norm, but that, it, so I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if, if it's not that I am incapable of, of discussing other topics. Like I'm a social person. I, I understand. I can, I can definitely branch out, but um, yeah, having people invite their girlfriends, it's, it's, I would love to have more Bitcoin families. So I think that's, that should always be encouraged. We can talk about work another day. Come on, you must have had some some great fun with guys that have sidled up to you, you know, at the bar and like tried to buy you a drink. Oh, there's this nice looking blonde lady over here. Let's go and have a conversation with her. And you just dump Austrian economics on him. <laughs> I mean, maybe. So there was actually a meetup that happened pretty recently here in Austin that was like such a large group of people. It was like Marty, who you mentioned, was there. Yeah. Um, it was probably like maybe, maybe 60 or 70 people. And it was just a ton of Bitcoiners. There were a fair amount of women there, like more than 10%, I would say. And like all of the women were, were sort of doing something. They weren't necessarily just something, someone's guest. Like I had a woman approach me who had found a loophole in some, in some law that's you're not allowed to give politicians gifts, but then if they're members of the military, then you can. And she had this list that she had accrued of like, all of the political figures that were also in the military that we could theoretically give books to and like sort of start. So like that was a really interesting angle. And then we met and now we're going to pursue that. But um, we have a ton of different conversations at these meetups. And it's usually not just number go up. That's usually just a Twitter thing. Yeah, you guys are so spoiled. I still have met very, very few in real life Bitcoiners uh, just by virtue of where we live, we're in the countryside here in France. Uh, there's not that many people in these local little hamlets that are stacking sats, to say the very least. I've managed to yeah. orange pill a few people, um, but they're still at the very beginning of their journey and uh, not not really completely falling down the rabbit hole. Uh, so I am hoping to get yeah, to Yeah, you've got to, to come because... to some of the Bitcoin events that happen in Europe. Yeah. As soon as we open up again, it's going to be... I got across to one that Stacking Sats threw in uh, Biarritz uh, last October, between lockdowns. We managed to get over there. And that was cool. But the whole damn conference was done in full French with masks on, with people split into different hotel rooms watching the YouTube big screen. And my French is nowhere near good enough for like technical Bitcoin... um, jargon behind the yeah. mask like this <laughs> so yeah i was, no, I was I generally think... found in i was generally found in the bar which wasn't you know too bad <laughs> that's where i would have been as well i can't speak any french but um no i think the one of the bitcoin events that happened here that was the first one since the whole covid lockdowns was called bitcoin and guns i gotta show their conference because those guys are amazing it's put on by ragnar and like, oh my, it, the first year it was, well, maybe it wasn't the first year, but the first year that I attended, it was quite small. It was like less than hundred people. And then I was told this year it was much larger. Um, that was a great conference. I don't know. You know, the whole mass thing is different here in Texas because we love our freedom, but um, it was just such a nice overlap of like, you know, the libertarian minded folks who want to 3D print their own guns. And then the Bitcoin folks who just like nerding out about about money and systems and stuff like that. So I, I, that was a really fun conference. You, you would never have something like that probably anywhere in Europe. <laughs> no, I can't imagine so. And yeah. where? Um, <laughs> what? Um, oh, I lost my train of thought. You're talking about Bitcoin and guns. Bitcoin. Uh, yes, the game theory. 
going on uh, across America at the moment between the different states? Are you seeing that heat up? Are you bullish that this is going to continue? What do you mean what by are that? You seeing? Well, we have uh, Wyoming, uh, Texas, Florida. Then last week we had the mayor of Jackson in Tennessee put the laser eyes on and talk about uh, taking his um, city wow. to, to Bitcoin. Um, yeah. This is speeding up, right? This is interesting. Where, where do you see That's this? That's extremely interesting. Yeah, where do you see this heading? So, so without getting into like my whole theory about what I think is going to happen to the slow demise of the U.S., I think, I think it's it's a positive thing. It's obviously in everyone's self interest to become like the the Bitcoin city in the U.S. I'm extremely happy happy to see that this is occurring because it's better for all of us if regulators are Bitcoin holders and like care about seeing Bitcoin do well. Um. That being said, I think I'm most interested in not necessarily state acceptance, but like state protection of it, I would say. So like, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember I only read the headline. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of that. But I think I remember in Miami, they were like allowing people to pay taxes and, and they were going to pay government employees if they wanted to, to opt into like some sort of Bitcoin payment, right? Do you remember that I headline? I believe so. Yeah, I, believe, I remember it, yes. I don't know how if that's actually true. I haven't dug deeper into it. But if that's true, that's really cool. But that's kind of more in the like Bitcoin shilling realm and not like Bitcoin acceptance realm, not like in the Bitcoin protection realm. Like, I think the stuff that Wyoming is doing, like they want to even implement like some sort of protection for DAOs. And, they, and then yeah, the legal landscape is not my, it's not my layer of expertise here, but I believe it was one of the major institutions in the US also came out with this ruling that for three years, they're not even going to attempt to come after some of the crypto projects and allow them to try and figure shit out for some period of time. So there's this sort of this laxed ruling on, or at least they've at least stated that they're going to, they're, they're, they're going to allow the crypto kids to experiment before coming down hard on them, which is great for the U S it's great for the U S. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if that necessarily changes where I would live because it doesn't, I'm not going to work for the government of, of Miami. So we'll, we'll see. I mean, the, the good news is a lot of the, like, I'm happy that the Bitcoin scene has moved outside of just California and Germany. Like that's a positive thing. I remember because I've lived all over the U.S. and like the way that I, I think about it is in the U.S. the scene is very technical, um, like very hoodie type type shit. And then in New York, it's all about like what people are doing at an enterprise level. How are people? It's more crypto than it is Bitcoin. All of this, it's it's definitely not technical. It's all at the level of like regulation and money. Um, so the fact that it's moving to Miami is like I wonder how their Bitcoin scene is going to evolve. Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they end up getting kind of just like a more fun entertainment sort of Bitcoin scene where you can go to all the local bars that accept Bitcoin and shit like that, which never really happened in the U in, in, in California. There was like one bar that accepted Bitcoin. There was one coffee shop right down the street from Stanford that accepted Bitcoin, but it was never like that. Some of the people who I know today who are like the wealthiest Bitcoiners all they did in the early days was like sell shirts and Bitcoin. And then they like hodled their 20 Bitcoin from their selling of shirts. Right. So like you could see stuff like that in the future where it's like someone owns like a, a corner store. They accept Bitcoin. They make they make a full Bitcoin and then their story becomes like a headline in, in 10 years or something like that. 
Right. And that, that brings us nicely on to nice segue, Kira, into lightning. You're welcome. Um, you touched on it. You touched it on your book, <laughs> in your book, excuse me. But then you said something along the lines of that's a whole, it's a book on itself. <laughs> Where do you see, how do you see it at the moment? And the like the the rise you know meteoric rise that it's recently had its acceptance and uh development and and your vision for the future of it uh what are we referring to the lightning network oh the lightning network sorry okay i didn't yeah. catch that in the sentence um the lightning network is is interesting um so this lightning network has been in the works for a long time a long, long, long time. Like this has been going on since like before Bitcoin cash was a thing. Right. So I think that was even partially the origins of it to some degree was like, okay, if in the book, I make, I make a very, I try to be as honest as possible about why fees need to exist. And if Bitcoin is ever going to work, fees do need to be pretty high. So that makes it hard to move money on the base chain. Now I'm not talking like Ethereum level high, but because their, their shit is really high right now. Um, but yeah, so if these are really high on the Bitcoin base chain, how are we going to do micropayments? Because I think what people fail to understand about the, the origins of like cryptocurrency and stuff like that is before cryptocurrency existed, one of the things that people really wanted some sort of digital money for was for micropayments. And I, there was a company that existed. It was called change tip. And it, it was honest to God, one of the coolest companies in my mind, because what they had done is they created an API that could be that had integrated with all of the existing social media sites. So Twitter, um, Discord, I don't know if discord existed back then, but like Slack and like all, like all of these, not just social media sites, but also chat platforms. And then what you would do is like, if you hosted a private instance of like, of say Discord or something, you'd plug into, I'm explaining this at a too technical of a level. Let's say no matter what social network you were on, you could at change tip and then you can say like, send Jeff five bips or five, like whatever the hell bips were in their little system. But ultimately the, the point of the project was to send Bitcoin over social media. So if I want, if I liked a podcast, like let's say someone's watching our podcast and they liked it, then they could send me Bitcoin over Twitter using change tip. And then the person, if they have, if they didn't have a change tip account, they would like log in and then go and, and, and be able to access their Bitcoin. That was so cool. Um, I loved it, but for whatever reason, the economics didn't necessarily work out for that project to to be a full company, and then it ended up getting bought by Airbnb. I could see a ton of stuff happening in the realm of micropayments if if the economic if the economics for Lightning work, and we're just not there yet. So, like to to rehash my ramblings out, right? The fees on Bitcoin need to be high. Therefore, we need to have a way to make Bitcoin payments that that are smaller than the level of the fee. So if moving $100 on the on the main chain in Bitcoin um, cost you $20, then making a $20 payment on the main chain no longer makes sense. So where do we make those $20 payments or, you know, 10, or, or less than 10, five, whatever. And that sort of falls into the micropayments idea that we would love to have micropayments be a real thing. We've never had it work successfully. So in the in the example that I give, ChangeTip was a centralized company using a decentralized tool at the base of it. 
But from a fee perspective, it didn't make economic sense. So potentially it could make sense with lightning. Um, I actually sold my, I, I sold my book, which to my knowledge was one of the first things ever sold with lightning, like <laughs> at that level. So I, I had sold my book. I've sold art with the, I, I integrated lightning into my WordPress site for a while, um, which was cool. And now there's another, there's another company that's doing this open node that's helping you integrate with, with lightning. Cause so far lightning integration is still a little technical for the average person to do. Uh, I think it's really interesting and we're all still hoping that the economics of it work out. And like at another level, when I think about that, when I say the economics of it, right, Bitcoin is, is, is sort of like a safety net if fiat fails. Bitcoin already exists. It's not going to become anything new. Bitcoin is there if fiat fails. Now, if fiat fails, we really need to have those smaller level payments work because that's so many of my charges, if you look at my bank statement, are smaller level payments, right? Like how many subscription services do I have that are under $20? So that would all fall into the camp of Lightning. Now, Lightning has its own bur- it, it, some its own technical hurdles when, when it comes to using it. But if we absolutely need it, people will overcome those hurdles, which we've already seen as true for Bitcoin. Like private keys are hard to work with. People overcome that and they work with Bitcoin. Lightning is hard to work with. People will overcome that and they'll work with Lightning if the economic incentives line up. We're not there yet. Everyone who plays with Lightning is playing with Lightning because it's it's a fun, cool, new thing. They're not playing with Lightning because they need to buy a sandwich at the deli. But I think that's, I think that's why it w- it's being attempted. And it's, it's kind of nice that we have this long runway to figure out how to make lightning technically work in the event that it's actually needed. Yeah. Have you seen the Sphinx project, the Sphinx chat guys? Do you know what they're trying to do? I have not. Yeah, Educate that, me, please. Basically, it's basically what you've just described that, um, you know, you, you join that platform and you can listen to the podcast. And as you're listening to the podcast, you're streaming like, like a hundred sats per minute, whatever you set it at. And that podcast, that content creator can start building a tribe, uh, you know, connect the, um, the app to his own node. And there you have this tribe, this beautiful kind of little uh, community that is uh, rewarding the content creator and you can boost and then you can use it to chat as well. So you chat each other and send like just tiny payments over lightning and it's completely then encrypted mm-hmm. that like nobody else it's just you and the tribe of people that are, that are there. And it's very, very interesting. So I've undersold it, Paul. I'm very, very sorry, but Paul will be coming onto, show, onto the show to talk about it. But if you go and catch his episode Wonderful. with Marty Bent on Tales from the Crypt, it's a brilliant episode. Got it. Okay, yeah. So that's really interesting. I would say... Um, the, the technical challenge is, is way smaller than the economic challenge of making that work. So I would be interested. You should ask him questions based on that of like how, how they, how they monetize it, how, how it works that way. Um, but I, I love for those things to exist. And what's going through my mind when we're talking about this is what other people may not be aware of the amount of development work required to implement something in a peer to peer way, way is like, I don't know, an order of magnitude more difficult than implementing it in a centralized way. So, you know, if you're on YouTube, all of those things already exist on YouTube. So we're in this weird, and you would, this is a fiat money problem, but we're in this weird situation where we're kind of competing with people who have it much easier than us 
both from a cash flow perspective and from like the ease of implementation perspective. So it's like we're, we're fighting this war from both a money perspective and from a technical perspective. It's, it's very challenging to get these things to work, to get the incentives to line up. And a comparison that might make more sense for people who aren't necessarily in understand that what I'm saying there is, you know, when you're trying, we talked about education. That's how we started the podcast. It's very difficult for, for schools that want to create, uh, you know, non-states, non-state funded schools, it's harder for them to get off the ground because they're competing with free state education. So it's like, if you want to provide good education at the cost that it actually costs to produce it, it's going to be more than free, right? And that's the same situation as what we're talking about with these micropayments. So micropayments, anyone who's doing it is is definitely doing a service. I know the lightning the lightning guys have it hard. I should I shouldn't say lightning guys. I should just say the light, lightning as a technology has it hard. It's also competing with altcoins. You know, from inside the crypto space, there's it, it's if someone wants to implement, I think it's Signal, right? Signal's implementing this like mobile coin thing that they're and plugging into the app. Like the the amount of money that someone can make from making an altcoin is again orders of magnitude more than they'll ever make from implementing lightning. So that's a challenge. That's a huge challenge. Um, well, the only solution to this is for Bitcoin to, to moon. That's the only way that the incentives then, then switch. Well, that's going to happen soon enough. Um, what's, what's (laughs) the, um, what's, what's your role at, at Blockstream and, um, what is the, please educate me on, um, what the liquid network is. Is that the same kind of idea or is this, um, well, I'll ask you what's going on there. Sure. So um, I'm a sysadmin at Blockstream. Um, really what the liquid product is, is it's it, the term originally when it was sort of conceived of back in the day, like 2015 or 14, I forget when the original paper was written, but a long time ago already, uh, it was conceived of as a side chain. So at, for people who understand the technical landscape of this, at the base of it, you have a multi-sig contract that's managed by a federation. So when when you send, imagine there's this parallel chain to Bitcoin and you can send your Bitcoin to this parallel chain and it creates a one-to-one on that chain. And then on that new chain, you can trade with new properties because it's a totally different chain with, with different um, emergent properties. So transactions can be confirmed faster. Um, you could also do confidential transactions. It's in a, in a way it's, you can look at it as kind of a layer two. It's it's really just a, a different blockchain. Um, it, it Lightning is a layer two. It isn't a blockchain at all. This is sort of like a layer two. That's a, It's a totally different blockchain that has different operating principles that allow you to do potentially more interesting things. But I think, to be honest, we're still trying to figure out what the market demands are. So like right now, you can you can look at the market and then you can try and make a guess about what the market wants. But sometimes it'll take you years to implement that at, at a technical level. So that's been a challenge of Liquid. I think, I think Liquid has yet to find its its complete niche as to what it's offering because it's com- it's competing with a lot of other blockchains. And part of the incentive structure that makes it challenging is a lot of these blockchains in behind the scenes world they'll just pay you to do things on their blockchain to to to, to create volume. So although I find Liquid to be interesting from a development standpoint, I think that there have been a number of cryptographic toys, tools, crypto candy that have been implemented there. Um, 
I think that's been its primary use case and ha- and probably will continue to be its primary use case for a while is like a playground for developers to figure out what what works and that is separate from the market figuring out what it wants. Right. And I wanted to ask you a question. Sense. It does. It does. And it leads me into the next question because you talk about this in the book and I always like to do a little bit of FUD busting where possible. And you you, you do a good job with smart contracts in the book. Can you explain to people, can you give us something in our armory? So when you're meeting noobs or like uh, the, the pushback from certainly the Ethereum community uh, and perhaps others, oh yeah, well, you know, you can't write smart contracts on Bitcoin and this is a, this is what we do over here. Um, can you explain a little bit, you know, what is a smart contract and why, as you, you know, talk about in your book, it's almost impossible to take like legacy system contracts onto uh, a blockchain. Yeah. So I think this, this again comes from my experience of having been in the predominantly like in what I would say is just like the crypto ecosystem, right? Like I was on the same Bitcoin Twitter you're on. I'm on the same crypto Twitter that everyone else is on. I hear the dialogue that's taking place. But on top of that, I am all. I also lived in the Silicon Valley where I would meet people at bars who sold their house to buy crypto, right? So I would have one-on-one conversations with people on a regular basis as to what they thought crypto was. And I was a lot like those people. And then I started working with cypherpunks. And unless you're educated on the history of smart contracts and cryptocurrency and how this whole system actually came to be, which I try and provide that context in the book. Um, When you hear the word smart contracts, first off, great branding term, fantastic branding term. Like nobody actually knows what smart contracts are, but they're really sure whatever coin their shilling has it, right? Their coin has the smartest contracts. That's how I I kind of categorize it. That's that's how it comes off to me. Um, But when I started working with cypherpunks, I'm like, oh, I, I like learned about the first paper that theorized about smart contracts. And really the origins of it was, if we take one iteration past just trying to get peer-to-peer cryptocurrency, was they were trying to get peer-to-peer ownership, right? So it's like, how do I, how do I mirror? Like if, when I live in my house, I have the keys to my house. I walk into it. I lock the door behind me. There's no way to really do that in the digital world. When you log into your Dropbox, yeah, you you only have your username and password, but like Dropbox also has access. They manage the servers for that. So it's not exactly private. You know, it's not private from Dropbox itself. Um, so the way that I think about smart contracts or the way that I try and explain this to people is historically smart contracts were trying to create ownership. That That's really what it was. How do we create digital ownership? The way that Bitcoin innovated at this level or, or towards the, so as a solution for this problem is it created a smart contract that was that created the concept of locking and unlocking while you could send peer to peer. So, you know, with uh, if people understand encrypted messaging, you know, you can understand how like I encrypt a message and then I send it to you, you decrypt the message and you send it back to me. Bitcoin is more or less repurposing that technology in a way that allows it allows us to send lock and receive value. This was huge because this hadn't been done before Bitcoin. This hadn't been done. So when you take that was what it meant to be a smart contract. And in the book, I have a section about this that talks about opcodes. And I I think that's the lowest technical level that someone actually needs to go in order to like, if they really want to understand like how Bitcoin works, 
you can understand just a little bit about opcodes and then you're there and you understand most of the system in my mind. When you compare the term and the use of smart contracts in the Bitcoin or cryptography world, that is not at all what is meant in, let's say, the crypto or marketing world, right? In the number go up world. Like when people say smart contracts to me at a bar, they're pretty sure they're not talking about just locking and unlocking Bitcoin, right? No one even understands that that was a smart contract at least as people understood it in, in, at the time. Now, what people mean as is, is a smart contract is more or less they have some obscure legal thing that they want to implement, right? They want to like, oh, I want to make my mortgage payments in, in, in crypto or like, I don't know what people dream up. There's all kinds of crazy shit that people want in a smart contract. The problem with that is, and I explained this better when it's done visually, but uh, trying trying to do it verbally here, it's you can't actually make a legal contract that's written in English or any other human language for that matter into a provably, like you can't translate that into code. You cannot translate that into code. And this is also, it's interesting that I ended up where I ended up in life because I remember I was taking a class on, uh, I was taking like a discrete math class or something like that. And and I was I was taking some sort of advanced math class. In addition to that, professor was also offering a math history class, and he would talk about all these sword fights that would happen over theorems and like crazy shit. It was amazing, and then people would just like the the room was packed on the math history class. And I I thought to myself, I don't know how this this came about, but I was like, I wonder if I can turn the Constitution into like like an like actual like like logical notation. Because if I can turn the constitution into logical notation, then I can write it into code. That was my thinking. And I, I don't even know if I knew how to code at the time. Like I was just trying to understand like how, like if this was something that was even possible. And and then you realize why lawyers exist because you're like, oh shit, this one sentence can be interpreted at least a hundred different ways that I'm aware of and probably a thousand different ways that a good lawyer is aware of. There's actually no way to implement this in logical notation, meaning there's no way to implement it in code, right? So there's a huge misunderstanding of what people think of as smart contracts. Like they carry over the meaning of a contract and then they and then they put that into code and like that just doesn't happen. Like one of the mental models that I had a breakthrough in understanding, which to me is so simple now, but was huge at the time because I really didn't understand it, was the difference between code and cryptography. Like in cryptography, something is provable in a math, in like a, in a mathematical formula sense, right? You can prove the theorem, you can prove the, that everything works and is secure in math. But then when you actually implement that into code, now your code is kind of like, it's kind of like going from English language to code. It's not as tight. It's not as tight as it was when it was in math like when it was pure. So once you when you implement cryptography in code, well, you also in, introduce the p potential for bugs because there's, yeah, it, it's having a, a language that's capable of implementing what it is you're trying to say in math is challenging. And we see that in all of the smart contracting language because we're humans trying to interface with computers and all of the smart contracting languages that exist are meant to be easily written by humans. They're not necessarily written to be perfect implementations of the underlying cryptography. In fact, most of the smart contracting languages that exist aren't even really implementing cryptography at that level. But So I'm probably getting too deep into it. But when you're using a Solidity contract or something like that, you're not writing cryptography. You're, you're, writing, you're, you're, you're writing like what you think is a legal contract. 
in code and there's there's infinite infinite ways that this can go wrong like one of the things that I'm work I'm, I'm working with a company that's trying to do this now is they're just trying to write a simple burn an issuance contract where it's like when you move into one cryptocurrency you burn and then when you move back you 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 mint right and that make that doesn't make sense to bitcoiners really but it makes sense in the crypto scene um but it's really challenging because if there's a bug in that in that gap then you create the ability to infinitely inflate or infinitely burn right and that's just a simple simple contract that's not even talking about like oh i want to build goldman sachs on the blockchain which unfortunately is what people think when they hear smart contracts oh man just if anyone's listening just just buy and hodl bitcoin don't get <laughs> don't get uh, because i was bamboozled by the the whole smart contract thing back in 2016 early 2017 and oh this is all singing and dancing and uh, fell for that marketing. And um, yeah, I just hope people that listen to these podcasts, uh, you know, avoid the same kind of pitfalls that we've fallen down in the past. You got to stop smoking the hopium. You know, yeah. if, it, if it sounds too good to be true, it, it might just be. And like a lot of these things are extremely complicated. Uh, so Bitcoin is an innovation for a good reason, and it's because it achieved complexity by being extraordinarily simple. Like the smart contract that it, the smart contracting language, if you can call it that, that implements opcodes is based off of, or it, excuse me, it implements transactions using opcodes is based off like a language that was used in the 70s for, for, for computing. Like it's so, it's so old, it's simple. When you try and create higher level, uh, programming languages, things become increasingly complex and increasingly difficult to test for for security. So yeah, that's a constant issue in the in the Solidity Ethereum smart contracting world is like, how do you actually know that your contract is doing what you think it's doing? Um, there's no good answer to that other than like cross your fingers and hope no one finds a vulnerability. Everyone's flying by the seat of their pants, right? And there's so much money to be made in that space that it's sort of like worth the risk, I think, for people. But that's not the view that Bitcoin took. Like Bitcoin took the view that it wanted to be secure money and it value, it chose security in every instance over like flexibility. So that's what you're getting when you buy into Bitcoin. You're not getting, um, you're not getting like a hype platform where people can build. Like one of the things that really helped me understand this really is like, okay, if smart contracts are so new revolutionary and they're going to like decentralize and I don't know, like what's another hype term that people would use? They're going to the, democratize all of finance. Why is it that the only smart contract that really exists in a meaningful form end up being tokens? It's because it's hard to write these things. And like, so I don't know, it, it's a it's a good thought experiment to run down, to, to really go down like what you think a smart contract is versus what it actually is. And then you can you can buy Bitcoin Clarity. You could read that chapter, and you'd be like, okay, like if, if that doesn't expand your understanding of smart contracts, um, I, yeah, I, I don't have another resource that I would be able to point you to because it's 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 no, a challenging it's, mental model to understand. It certainly helped me. It was it was great. Thank you very much for for doing that. And you you touched on this right at the beginning. You know, it's uh, like you said, it's been going crazy in other areas as well with the whole DeFi thing or the NFT kind of push. Again, just classic marketing, you know, influencers coming out of nowhere and pushing these things, which is just, here we go again, right? A perfect example that's hot right now is if you, have you heard of BitClout? No. Thank okay, goodness. well, you're, you're a pure soul. Well, 
So um, I, I have a, a circle of friends here in Austin who are like more on the investing side than they are on the technical side. And they got, they all got really excited about BitClout because it's this, it claims to be like a decentralized social media. But when you pull it back, it, it's actually backed by, this is one of the great aspects of how they succeeded with marketing. They're, they have some of the biggest Silicon Valley names in the space. Like, like they have the names of the biggest, the biggest investment companies in, in the Valley. So props to them for doing that. But ultimately their, their value prop is that they're a decentralized social media. And when I looked at the tech, I'm not even convinced it's a blockchain. So it like if it's a blockchain, it's like one node, right? So it's like it it's like running a server and then saying like, look, it's decentralized, you know, and it's 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 clearly not decentralized. So, uh, but people don't care. Like they want they want to think that it's decentralized, and if you give them the branding of that, they're happy with that in the short term. But in the long term, that can never win, right? And then Bitcoin had the opposite, right? It's like. Bitcoin was decentralized pretty early on, for, at least from meeting minim, minimum viable stopping of, of censorship standards. But nobody really understood what that meant. It's it's like it's it's such a crazy upside down world where the decentralized platform takes years to get traction, but now this totally centralized platform is getting overnight hype. I think they raised like three thousand Bitcoin. In case you're interested in the numbers there, but which yeah, like your eyes should be bugging out when you hear that. So. Yeah, marketing is very important when it comes to extracting resources from people. Like, I wouldn't want to undermine that. Uh, but at the end of the day, in the long run, what actually wins? And it's not marketing in the long run. So as someone who has worked at one of these technical companies, I know how challenging it is because the tech, the best tech doesn't always win. And the best marketing makes the most noise, but it doesn't always win long term either. So you, you have to be able to strike the balance when you're when you're building these tools. How do you make the balance of we're going to make tech that's actually sound security reviewed that that value security as, as like a fundamental principle, but one that's not so nerdy that no one can interact with it. Yeah, like if, if only security researchers or or like top level Google engineers are capable of running your code, then it's probably not going to be a successful project. No, and I, I try and tell people like that the, the quickest way to kind of sift through this noise is and something to remember as well is like, you know, Bitcoin has educators, altcoins need influencers. And I think it's just such a great little litmus test. It's like, you know, what's going yes. on in the Bitcoin space? What do you see? You see books, you see podcasts, you see, you listen to a couple of the discussions and just tell me if anyone's trying to sell you and then go and watch an NFT promo video or, you know, some kind of DeFi company and just visit their website that they're so easy to spot. That's an excellent point. Yeah. I, I, I had a philosophy for a long time where I never told anyone that they should buy Bitcoin. I just like lived my life the way that I live it. But what I've learned is a lot of people don't want to do their own research. I'm not in the job of like, forcing people to become educated on things. Like I just want to do what I think is interesting. And for me, like understanding, understanding complex systems that can balance hardware, software, money, like legislative issues, like that stack that is Bitcoin is so interesting to me. Um, an NFT stack is like a little less interesting. I think it's going to end up being a bit of a flash in the pan, but I'm not the market, right? I'm just, I, I have this, I have this written in the book as well. Like in the chapter on markets is, you, you can have a belief about the value of something and I can have a different belief about the value of something, but ultimately it's the aggregate belief of all the believers in the market 
that make up the price. So like, you know, in the NFT world, as in the art world, if you have one person that wants to pay a million dollars for something, well, then it's worth, I mean, it's, these aren't fungible tokens. There's only one of them. So it's worth a million dollars. But that doesn't transfer because it's non-fungible to the base layer in any meaningful way. Like Bitcoin, Bitcoin's value had to, it had to convince people slowly, you know, and now we have industry participation. We have all these NFL players, like to, to the, to the hype credit, to the influencer credit, all of that, like laser eyes and getting people in the group, it does help people feel like it, you know, it helps people get like into the industry where they can learn things. Um, like you would, you're going to learn more having laser eyes on your profile and having people who are in Bitcoin Twitter comment and respond to you than you would watching, like, I don't know, like some sort of like television channel about, like, about, about stocks. You know what I mean? Like those people don't have any, or, or even going to university for that matter. Some of the university courses on, on crypto are, are probably more of a detriment than a benefit. So I don't know. I try and stay balanced. So that, that's, that's my, my slow walk back from like, well, maybe Bitcoin Twitter does have some value. It, it does get new people in the space in a way that gets them really engaged and, and excited. And that energy is good. Yeah, for sure. 100%. I'm going to read uh, a great quote from your book, and then uh, I'd like to get to your, your thoughts on it. Uh, the three slogans of the Fed should be paper is gold, fraud is trust, and debt is wealth. Nicely put. Very, uh, very Orwellian. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrifying. And like sometimes when I stare at the problems of the Fed, it just goes so deep. Um, I know I, I rewrote part of the book when they removed the 10% Federal Reserve, like when they removed the 10% reserve requirement. So the the thing with being an illusion is you can't just be an illusion all at once, right? So, you know, the, there's been a slow rollback in what we view as culturally acceptable. And like you see this, uh, it, it's analogous to guns in, in America, where it's like, it's it's a death by a thousand cuts, not by one cut. You don't go overnight for making guns co- a constitutional right to being illegal. You just make, oh, big, scary guns illegal. And then, you know what I mean? And then you, you, you just do that over and over and over again until like, literally a gun becomes defined as like, you know, some, something completely ridiculous and you can't even have a handgun or something like that, right? And in the crypto space, or not in the crypto space, but with money, with fiat money, we see the same thing. It's like money used to be stored labor. That was how people in the Middle Ages would have conceived of it. It's like, it's this, of course, there's still problems to that. Like you can just go like, Spain can go conquer all of Latin America and they bring back all the gold. And like, that. that's not exactly stored labor. We, we all understand that. There are still edge cases where this isn't true, but for the person who's working day to day, money was stored labor. And now with the Fed, like not only are we moving like away from that at an individual level, but what money has become is a tool for maintaining global dominance. Like if your money can be used, if your money can be accepted as a state level, then you as a state have more power. So it's 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 a dirty game of like trying to figure out in fact, one of the things I want to include in the Crypto Chaos book, once I really parse this out for myself a bit more, is like, you know how staking is huge in the crypto space, where it's like everyone, oh, we're, we're going to issue a token and then they're going to stake the token because that's going to incentivize them to hold it. This is somewhat analogous to the way that the Fed prints all this money and then re- demands from a political level that other other countries hold it 
as reserves, quote unquote reserves. That's what gives it value. What gives what gives the U.S. currency its reserve status is the fact that people hodl it. <laughs> so, and not just people, but federal, but all these 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 national banks, right? So, yeah, it's it's very interesting how we're sort of rediscovering this in crypto, like. It's it's crazy to me how money has come so far. I think that the Federal Reserve is absolutely a criminal organization. That being said, it's a criminal organization that we're all dependent on, so it's also providing stability, which is an, is another dark dark road to to go down. Like if the Federal Reserve fails, how much instability does that cause in the world? It's not something that I would advocate for. Like I wouldn't. So yeah, it, it's a challenge. Like I'm really glad Bitcoin exists in the event that the Federal Reserve fails. I don't know how it fails, but I do know that when it does, it would be bad. Right? So it would be bad from the per- to perspective of like our my future children, your current very real children. Um, yeah, it would be it would be very bad. So it's it's hard. I even think trying to hedge my hedge my Bitcoin excitement. I think what would the world look like if we go to a, a currency that can't be inflated? How much? at least in the short term, you're going to have a massive amount of stagnation because as people are moving from fiat to Bitcoin, it's going to be way more profitable for holders of Bitcoin to simply hold Bitcoin than it would be to build anything. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Yeah, hit me. If you had one orange pill left to give to someone, who would you give it to and why? Huh. Who would I give it to and why? That's a ooh, that's a great um I wish I could go back in time. Um well, that's man, a cool who, answer. Yeah. For a long time it was Kanye. I actually wanted Kanye and and we did manage to get Kanye to read the the Bitcoin Clarity book so he bit the Bitcoin bug because I think nice. having that kind of cultural acceptance is is actually valuable. Um it, it brings it to a new audience. Like I know there's a guy who did like the Bitcoin for black America book. Like that's dope. Um, there's something to be said about outreach like that, but now man, maybe someone, maybe someone at the fed directly because they would know the, they would know the ins and outs of, of how fiat worked and they would know more about how to, how to bridge the two systems. That would be crazy. <laughs> I, I, I want to pull you up on something here. You, you said you, you shilled lightly and then you drop in the fact that you managed to get your book into Kanye's hand. I mean, that's not shilling lightly. How did that go down? Oh, it was, so that wasn't my, so I was talking <laughs> to a friend that, so I was talking to a friend who told me Kanye needs to be into Bitcoin. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Okay. But then he made it happen. And I was like, okay, that I can see why that's valuable. And uh, you know, you, you, if, if, if we have a choice between Kanye making an NFT or Kanye reading Bitcoin Clarity, what would you choose? Bitcoin right? Clarity. So, and it really does yeah. matter how they how how they how they interface with the system as their first entry point. Because if someone comes in in the 2017 ICO hype wave, right, and then they get burnt on ICOs, it's going to make it harder for them to be interested in the base level Bitcoin. So there's an argument to be made that like I think that being doing the whole Bitcoin education thing is valuable. Um, it's it's just hard. It's just hard, man, because the incentives are crazy. Like if if you tell if you sit Kanye down and you and you tell him like, hey, this is how this is what Bitcoin is and this is why it's interesting. You should buy some and wait, 
versus like, hey, Kanye, I can sell an NFT that'll make you 10 million. What is going to get his attention faster, right? Like he doesn't just become a billionaire by not paying attention to cash flow. So it's a, it's a challenging issue. I think the, I think what a lot of uh, Bitcoiners that I know did that were like, you know, trying to really get influencers in the space is they just simply gave them Bitcoin and then like waited five years and then they had complete authority with them because they made them rich just by, you know what I mean? So that's a strategy too. I mean, granted, this is not like, that's not my area. Like I, what my passion and interest in is in understanding systems and communicating the value of systems. So the reason why I would choose someone at the Fed over say an influencer, although that did happen, is because I think that that the influencer at the Fed has had, would have an amazing opportunity to educate me on the intricacies of how the Fed actually operates. And then how to bridge those two worlds in terms of uh, further acceptance or maybe a more peaceful transition from the dollar to, to, to Bitcoin. Who's in your sights next to swag bomb a, a copy of Bitcoin Clarity to? <laughs> I'm not quite sure, to be honest. I think so. I'm, I'm going to be selling the book at uh, Bitcoin 2021, the conference that's happening in Miami. So that'll be dope. Um there's a ton of people there. Uh, there's t- Tony Hawk is going to be there, which is kind of funny to say out loud. And then like also Naval and stuff like that. So I, I don't, I, I don't know. I think about that a little bit less than I, than I maybe should. I think more about like what I want to write next. And I think for me, focusing on how I want to explain, I, I want to understand the existing fiat structure and then be able to compare that to the staking and stuff that's happening in crypto. I think that'll be amazing if I can, if I can, really understand that for myself in a way that I can communicate it to others. I think that would be valuable for a lot of the regulators who who understand the fiat system more than they understand the crypto system. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Kira, and going through the book and everything else that we discussed. How can people come and find you? What's the best way to uh, learn about you and the book? Yeah, I mean, you, you can come by my website. Um, it's getbitcoinclarity.com or you could just buy the book on Amazon. I'm also on Twitter. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm on all those platforms. So I, I, I have a YouTube channel that I put a little bit of content out on, but if someone wants to guide me in, in content that they'd like to see, I'm very receptive to that. I see all the comments. I don't have a ton of followers on YouTube at this point. So it's a, sort of like a small community where I can still read all the comments. So um, if people request specific videos, I will. I make more of an effort to make those than than ones I just sort of think of on my own. Cool. Well, thanks again. It's been uh, it's been great to get to know you, and thanks so much for everything that you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's been a, a great conversation, so I appreciate you a lot. And we'll, we'll hopefully we can make a, a meetup happen for you soon, so you can hang out with some Bitcoiners. Let's hope we get to see you in Miami. We're hoping uh, the restrictions get lifted. Nice. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Kira, again for coming on the show and taking the time out of your day to discuss your book, Bitcoin Clarity, which, again, guys, if you haven't read it, go grab a copy. It's awesome. I've got it sitting in front of me now doing these closing thoughts. I have turned down so many pages, it's ridiculous. And the reason being is, like I said at the beginning, it is so visual, like Hera explains in this interview, that she is a visual thinker. So she she has put these scribblings into the book and it really does help you understand what it is. And, and the whole 
there's a whole chapter, chapter six, on smart contracts, locking and unlocking, and kind of debunking that myth of, I'm not even going to shill what that other project is. You know what I'm talking about. But it's uh, it, it's good to have that knowledge in your arsenal, believe me. Go pick up a copy, Bitcoin Clarity. It's really worth it. Kira, thanks for coming on. Before I close this out, make sure you go and check the website, once-bitten.com. You can learn more about myself. You can check out the sponsors of the show. And you can find my own book, Choose Life, which I think I might start reading a chapter a week on the podcast to release for you all to listen to, rather than just stick it on Amazon, a centralized system. Another project up my sleeve. Please go and check out the sponsors. You know who they are. They're CoinFloor. They're Swan, they're Relay, and they're Shift Crypto. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I'll catch you on the next one.